Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. And I'd like to read with you verses 5 and 6, Hebrews 13. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Up to this point in this letter to the Hebrews, we've considered all that Jesus Christ is to the Christian. Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact representation of the nature of God. So when we say that we have Christ in us, the hope of glory, we should pause and take note that what we are really getting at is that God himself is actually in us and is with us. He is the exact representation of God. It is not a copy. It is not a model. It is not a reproduction. It is the radiance of the glory of God in us, living in us. Scripture even goes so far to say in 1 John 4 that the Christian is fundamentally, in his most basic sense, one who is from God. It's amazing. 1 John 4, 4, you are from God, little children. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. Well, how can this be? How can it be that God can come to dwell among his people, to be actually in us? The answer that any of us could give would would only be, I don't know. Like, how can this be? It's, It's just as Jesus said in Mark 4, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crop by itself. It is the life of God in our soul. It is the miracle of regeneration at conversion. The instantaneous, irresistible life of God comes into us, and we're handed over to the gospel. We become, as Paul puts it in Romans 6, slaves to righteousness. It is not that we are simply persuaded by truth at conversion. It's more than that. It is not a moral suasion. It is not that the truth of God is presented to our minds for us to analyze and then after reviewing it for us then to come to our own conclusion that, in fact, the word of God is really what it claims to be. You know the parable of the seed that falls on the rocky ground in Mark 4. 
The seed is not deep in the soil, but immediately it springs up with what, what appears to be life, only then to wither away when the heat comes. This is the person who immediately receives the gospel with joy, but that belief is based on a superficial and temporary faith with no firm root. And when difficulty comes for that person, he invariably falls away from Christ. As long as that person with superficial faith maintains a certain mindset, he appears to have faith in Christ. But when that mindset is altered, the temporary faith vanishes with it. Brethren, that is not conversion. None of us have a firm root in ourselves that we can trust and on which we can depend to determine for ourselves what is true and what is false. Conversion is not a mere persuasion of the truth of God. Conversion is to be made alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2. As Charles Hodge once wrote, a living man may be persuaded not to commit suicide, but a dead man cannot be persuaded into life. The gospel Paul preached was not a message of human wisdom. It was a stumbling block to Jews and to Gentiles' foolishness. He preached a message in weakness and in fear and in trembling, and yet we are told it is the power and the wisdom of God. A weak man is preaching Christ crucified, and in that foolishness, the wisdom of God is revealed to the church through the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Brethren, a man will always fail to come to God if left to himself. That is the entire story of the Old Testament that's been summarized for us in this letter to the Hebrews. None of the rituals of the Old Covenant can undo the pollution of man's conscience. But, we are told, by one offering, Jesus Christ has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Jesus Christ, God himself, the Lord who laid the foundation of the earth, has inaugurated for us a new and living way through his own flesh, and we are now exhorted to draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Brethren, we have the Lord today. Scripture says that when you come to the city of the living God, you come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, whose blood cries out in forgiveness of our sins. These things will never change for the Christian. We have an unshakable kingdom ahead of us. Well, in the final chapter of this letter, we find various instructions for holy living. This letter refers to the church as holy brethren. And the author here gives us practical counsel regarding holy living. This letter is profoundly theological and 
praise God, it culminates with an entire chapter on practical Christian living. You see, what none of us can escape here today is that if there really exists an unshakable kingdom laid up for us as members of the body, and if your own conscience is in fact clean before God today, and if in fact you actually have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, and Jesus Christ now appears in the presence of God on your behalf, if you really are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith, of those who carry on with the Lord to the preserving of the soul, if all the glorious things in the book of Hebrews regarding the perpetual intercession of the living Christ for his church actually pertains to you, then your personal life now is going to look a certain way. There are many practical things we could consider from Hebrews 13. Love for the brethren. Practicing hospitality. Sympathy toward prisoners and those who are physically mistreated. Physical purity in marriage. Honoring and imitating those who've led us spiritually. Maintaining purity in Christian doctrine, partaking of the sufferings of Christ, entering into those sufferings as a Christian, offering to God a sacrifice of praise, doing good and sharing, obeying and submitting to leaders in the church, praying for the body. All these things are given to us as an exhortation on Christian living here, and it would be right to consider any one of these things in isolation. But this morning, I would like to consider with you the subject of contentment. As we read Hebrews 13, 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. This is quite a statement, I think, and it it comes to us in this letter as somewhat of a surprise. Uh, the letter up to this point has been almost entirely doctrinal in terms of emphasizing the, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as our high priest, the one who has opened the way to God for us. And we have been exhorted and warned repeatedly in this letter. We're exhorted to pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. In chapter 2, verse 1, we've been warned lest an evil, unbelieving heart cause us to fall away from the living God. Chapter 3, verse 12, we've been warned lest bitterness keep us from the grace of God. Chapter 12, verse 15, we've been warned that we do not refuse God who is speaking to us today in his word. In chapter 12, verse 25, and now we find this further exhortation, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Make sure of it. After considering all that this letter has to say about the confidence we now have to enter the presence of God through Christ, it's hard to imagine a warning about money is really necessary. It it seems to me kind of shocking. After 
a detailed meditation on the priesthood of Jesus Christ, how can a consideration of money into, enter into things at all? What is money in comparison to Jesus Christ? It's hard to conceive the monetary value of all the bulls and goats that were sacrificed under the law. And yet, all that value did not purchase one soul It did not cleanse one conscience. Still, there is a very real tendency for people to exchange the glory of God for things that they can get for themselves in this life. What did Judas Iscariot ask the chief priests? What are you willing to give me to betray him to me? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. Jesus, or Judas rather, forsook Jesus Christ for something today that would be about $200. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Do you love money? What is money? Money is a symbol for all that is in the world. Right? Nothing more. Do you love the things of the world, I think Scripture is getting at here? I don't even mean immoral things. I just mean, do you consider that the source of satisfaction for you exists in things found in this life? Are you the sort of person who is constantly looking forward to that new tool or piece of clothing or the next vacation as the source of of your satisfaction. Many people live that way, hopping from one thing to the next. Or perhaps you're not into things. Instead, you're, you're looking for personal recognition or power. Are you content with your current position in life? Are you satisfied with what you have? Or the better question is, what do you have? First Timothy uh, 6 goes on like this. You can turn there if you want. First Timothy chapter 6. I'll read verses 6 through 10. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul says you need food and clothes and you should be satisfied with that. He, he is satisfied with that. He, he seems completely disinterested with what this physical world has to offer him. I come into this world naked and I leave naked. So he encourages us not to fall for the trap of worldly riches. They won't keep. <laughs> Collecting things in this world will ruin a man. It will destroy you. The text says, why were food and clothing enough for Paul? Why is Paul content with so little? 
The answer is that Paul had very little room left in himself to take into him the things of the world because he was filled up with God. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Paul had all that he needed within him because he had the life of God within him. Christ was in him, and he was satisfied with God. Consider another text, Philippians 4, verse 11 to 13. Paul wrote, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, let me remind you that Paul was in prison when he wrote those words. And he says... He knows no want. He says his particular physical circumstances are irrelevant to him. It doesn't matter if he has a lot or a little in this world, if he's filled or if his stomach is empty. He's learned the secret of being filled, and the secret is Christ within him. Paul had suffered the loss of all things, he wrote in the previous chapter. He had suffered the loss of all things for the sake of Christ, and he considered everything to be waste compared to knowing Christ. Paul was content with Christ. Are we content with Christ? Is Christ enough for you? So I'll return to my earlier question, what do you have? Scripture doesn't suppose that we can be content with nothing. We're needy. We need to be filled. So what do we have? Hebrews 13.5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Throw off a hunger for the things of the world. Being content with what you have. So what do you have? In Jeremiah 31, we find this promise from the Lord, I will fill the soul of the priests with abundance and my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Are you satisfied with the goodness of God? The Lord says, I will satisfy the weary ones and refresh everyone who languishes. (laughs) That is a tremendous promise. I mean, that's one that will work on pretty much any day, right? (laughs) I will satisfy the weary ones. Are you weary? Are you worn out? Are you hungry? You need to be filled. God says, I will satisfy. Do you come to God for strength? Do you come to him for refreshment? Does God fill you? I'll ask again, is God enough? The book of Hebrews is a call to hold fast 
your confidence in God, to be diligent, to enter God's rest, to run with endurance the race that God has set before you. And again, your race probably looks different than my race in its particulars. God leads one man down in a valley, the other is on the plain. We're all, pardon, we're all headed the same place. But we all have a particular race set before us. Are you running with endurance? Are you fixing your eyes on the goal on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of faith? The, the text in Hebrews is extremely active in all this. Running, enduring, being diligent, persevering, fixing our eyes. And we must not think that contentment means lethargy. The Christian is holding fast and running hard and resisting sin to the point of bloodshed, if necessary, in this letter. You see, we, we can't deny, none of us would deny, that things are all wrong in this world. That we don't see things subject to us as, as they will one day be. We look at ourselves and we can't see where we're going, but we do see him. We do see Jesus Christ, who was made, we're told in chapter 2, for a little while lower than the angels because of the suffering of death, now crowned with glory and honor. Do you have Jesus? Do you see something of the glory and honor of Christ? Is Christ enough for you? Are you striving after him? If you do not have the Lord, you'll never be content. You'll never be satisfied. Whatever you think you have in this world, I promise you, it will be taken away from you. Luke 8, Christ said, so take care how you listen. For whoever has, the context is eternal life, whoever has eternal life, to him more shall be given. That is the reality of the Christian. You have eternal life now, and more will be given. There is more to come. That unshakable kingdom is a heaven. That is the position of the Christian. But it goes on. And whoever does not have eternal life, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. For the Christian, things will only get better and better, ultimately. For the lost man, things will only get worse and worse. That is certain. Even what he thinks he has in this world shall be taken away from him. If you're thirsty, if you're weary, come to God. The way is open. The way is open. To you, through faith in Jesus Christ, don't spend money, or again, think of it in this way, don't spend your life here on things which can't satisfy. Isaiah 55, listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. It is utterly impossible for the lost man to be satisfied. He, he may feel happy at times, I'll, I'll admit to that, but this is primarily circumstantial, right? If things outside of himself look good, 
they're going his way. He feels good at the end of the day, and he often sleeps well at night. But if circumstances seem to be going poorly, things outside of him seem to be against him, then he feels bad and almost always sleeps poorly. The lost man is always moving from one passing thing to another. He's always waiting for the next big break in life that will satisfy him and fill him. What does the lost man have? He has nothing. Nothing. But a defiled conscience before God. Praise God, it is very different for the church. It is so different for the Christian. Look here again in Hebrews 13, the latter part of verse 5. Being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. What does the Christian have? He has the Lord. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, you have God in you. The hope of glory. This is actually a quotation from Deuteronomy 31. You don't need to turn there, but the summary here is that Moses is an old man. And his ministry is an added end. And the Lord has raised up Joshua, who is a type of Jesus Christ. Moses represents the law. He can't cross the Jordan. But Joshua is the one who does cross the Jordan ahead of the people. Joshua is the one who leads the people forward into the promised land. The way is open for the people in Joshua, and that's exactly what we see in the book of Hebrews, the way open for us. In Jesus Christ. And Moses encourages the people be strong and courageous and do not be afraid or tremble at them. That is, these daunting people that are against them in the land they're, they're entering into possess. Do not be afraid or tremble at your enemies. Why? For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. God is always going with us as we move across, as we move in to conquer more territory, right? For the sake of the Lord, as we seek that spiritual kingdom, he will not fail you or forsake you. I think there in Psalm 27, my mother and father may forsake me, right? Friends may fail us. Foes forsake us, even my mother and father. But what? The Lord will take me up. He will not fail you or forsake you. When God goes with you, when God never fails you, when God never forsakes you, and you live in that truth, it is easy to be content Brethren, does God go with us? Yes. Do we have the Lord? Yes. Are we content? We should be. We should be. What is the outcome of the faithfulness of God and resting in him? Being content with what you have, for he himself has said, 
I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? What is the fruit in our lives of the faithfulness of God toward his people? What is the outcome of resting content in the Lord? Confidence. With confidence I now draw nigh. We draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. And we confidently say, the Lord is not a helper. No, no, personal. The Lord is my helper. He comes to me. He meets me where I am. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Oh, beloved, don't be afraid of man. Be afraid of failing to enter into God's rest. That's what Hebrews tells us in chapter 4. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have fallen short of it. Be afraid that you're not content with God. Well, this promise here that the Lord is my helper is a quotation from Psalm 118, and maybe we'll turn there and close with a section there. Glorious things for us here. Psalm 118, I'll just read the first few verses in closing. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say his loving kindness is everlasting. From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me. And set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge and the Lord than to trust in princes. The Lord is for us, brethren. We need not fear. God help us to know the confidence that comes from being satisfied in him. The same God who said to Paul, my grace is enough. My grace is sufficient for you. Is the same God today who welcomes us into his presence, who urges us to draw near with confidence to him, and who promises us that he will never desert us, never forsake us. 
Amen.